Welcome back to the show, guys. Today we have a special guest, Polina Marinova Pompliano. Polina is the author behind, in my opinion, one of the best and most unique newsletters on the internet today. It's called The Profile, and it's a newsletter dedicated to curating and crafting profiles of all kinds of successful and interesting people, both in the business world and also outside of it. And it's beloved by folks as wide-ranging as Alexis Ohanian, a big figure in venture capital, and The Rock. Yes, That Rock. Before going full-time with The Profile, Polina was actually an editor at Fortune magazine, where she wrote Term Sheet, which is a daily newsletter on deals and dealmakers, which, by the way, I love. And now Polina is not only full-time as a newsletter writer and creator, but she has also written a book called Hidden Genius, which is going to release in June of this year, and we talk about the process behind that as well. Polina and I actually met in an interesting way. We were introduced by a mutual friend who connected us while I was actually briefly living in Miami in 2021. We had a call scheduled, and then we actually ran into each other at a party in Miami, and we realized that we actually had our first call scheduled the very next day. So it was a funny kind of serendipitous moment, but basically I have been admiring and following her work for a few years now, and she is just such a great example of a creator carving her own path. I think that's what I love learning about and people I love talking to, not just creators, not just entrepreneurs, but people who are really doing something different that hadn't been done before, and Polina really exemplifies that. So this conversation is all about how she started the profile, what she's learned. We talk about her craft. We also go into her tips on interviewing because she not only does a lot of interviews for the profile, but she also did a lot of interviewing when she was at Fortune and when she was in more traditional journalism, interviewing big names like Melinda Gates and Jeff Immelt of GE or Steve Schwartzman. We talk about building community, and we also even touch on some of the really inspiring but lesser known people that she has profiled. It's an awesome conversation. I love diving into the nitty gritty of the actual craft and process and thinking of different creators. So for me, this was an incredibly satisfying peek into the behind the scenes of a creator I admire. Now, before we dive into this episode, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Livecom, a great plug and play tool for adding shoppable video to your website. Consumers want to see videos of real people using your product. And the best tool for that is Livecom. Their plug-and-play tool lets you add shoppable videos to your Shopify store with just one-click, no-code embeds. You can make your products come to life through shoppable UGC, product videos, PDP videos, how-to, sizing, explainers, and everything in between. And it's just a no-brainer way to increase your conversion rates on your website. We actually had one of the co-founders, Kevin Gold, on the podcast yesterday. So if you haven't tuned into that episode, it's incredibly helpful. It's just full of wisdom about the creator economy, especially. So if you want to learn more about Livecom, just go to livecom.com forward slash Dolma, L-Y-V-E-C-O-M dot com forward slash Dolma, and they're going to hook you up with 20% off and a one month free trial. Without further ado, let's get into the conversation with Polina Marinova Pompliano. We are here today with Polina Marinova Pompliano. I am so excited to have you here, Polina, because since we first met in, I want to say it was 2021, I feel like that was a lifetime ago in Miami. So much has happened. Your Substack has taken off so much. You have written a book that's going to come out in a few months. You have had a baby. You have done all the things. And then I've had my own wild content journey. So it's so exciting to have you. That's awesome. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> So for those who are not necessarily familiar with the profile, give us an introduction of yourself and how you got to writing the profile. So I was working at Fortune magazine for, let's see, at the time it was three years. And in February of 2017, I decided to do something for myself on the side that had nothing to do with my day-to-day -day job. And that was the profile, which started out as a weekly email to family and friends just curating the best long-form profiles that I had read that week. In the beginning, it was just sort of something that I did out of love for long-form journalism and also as a conversation starter with family and friends. I was like, I'm going to read this stuff and then I'm going to send it and then we're all going to you know, talk about it. So that was in February of 2017. And then in 2020, I was still working at Fortune, but I had gotten it in my head of like, what would it look like 
if I worked on the profile full time and gave it all my energy and effort. And once that question kind of entered my mind, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Everything I consumed made me wonder like, oh, well, the passion economy is on the rise. Like, does that mean there's an appetite for something like this? Would people pay for it? Substack existed, which is the email platform that I used to send the profile. But I had no examples of reporters at traditional media organizations leaving their jobs to pursue a newsletter full time. So I kind of, you know, looked at the risk, try to mitigate the risk by backing into how many paying members to the profile I would need to match my existing salary at Fortune. And I made the leap in March of 2020. So before starting the profile, you were at Fortune where you were an editor and you wrote Term Sheet, which I used to consume religiously, by the way. And before that, you were at Aussie, CNN. So, I mean, you were even educated in traditional journalism and you were in the traditional media landscape. And now you are part of the passion economy, the creator economy, as somebody who's independent. In terms of the actual craft of what you do, how is what you do now the same and how is it different? I think the thing that drew me to journalism in the very beginning, I worked at my high school newspaper and then was the editor of my college paper. And from there on out, I went to kind of traditional media. But the thing that drew me to journalism in the very beginning was storytelling and this idea that you could pair research with qualitative details that you notice and you observe about the person. So in striving for the truth and to get to objective truth, whatever that may be, how can you take the reader on a journey where you tell a story, but you also pull out certain nuances and details and observations about the person that you're talking to that will make the reader understand? With somebody who has no context and maybe doesn't even care about this news event or this person, how can you make them care? And that's probably what drew me to journalism the most. But the biggest difference is, like you mentioned, I've worked at a media startup and a traditional media organization to my own newsletter media company. The differences in all of those is the approach to storytelling and the lens through which you have to adjust. <laughs> to see the person. So the reason I really, really loved Fortune is it was incredible long form journalism that not only shapes reality, but it has the power to cause change and meaningful change. I mean, Fortune was the outlet that broke Enron. It's really powerful, meaningful journalism. And that's what I was drawn to. But I was particularly drawn to like profiles and features on people. And the reason that really attracted me is because it's like a lot of us on the surface have very similar views on things. Uh, depending on where you live, you could have a lot of similarities with the people around you. But it's like, what are those like tiny, tiny differentiators that make you different from me, different from my neighbor, different from my coworker? And it's those tiny habits and attributes that people have that with the profile, I'm just really interested in teasing out and learning from. One thing I discovered that was a surprise to me when I started doing my TikTok content, I will profile female founders or female founded companies and their strategies. One surprising thing that I learned is I can start profiling somebody because I think they're culturally relevant and interesting to my audience, but then kind of fall in love with that person and their accomplishments and their story in the process and have such a deeper understanding of what makes them tick and what their secret sauce is. And it's been really striking to me because they're people that normally I would have written off or dismissed, but but now I'm like, wow, I actually really appreciate their own particular brand of genius. Has there been anybody like that for you where at first you thought, OK, this will be an interesting profile to do. But then you actually, after the deep dive, fell in love with who they were as a person. That happened to me <laughs> with, of all people, Kris Jenner, the matriarch of the Kardashian-Jenner family. OK, at first I watched an interview with her. She did one with Kim Kardashian for Deal Book. And I was like, hold on a second. She's really, really intelligent in terms of she knows what she's doing in business. But then everybody that I talked to was like, you're not going to do like a deep dive on Kris Jenner. Like this is supposed to be, you know, serious and things that people can learn from. And I was just like, no, there's something here. And I didn't know that much about the Kardashians at all. I didn't know much about Kris Jenner. But... Once I started diving in and listening to the different podcast interviews that she's done, 
I always say like once you hear something three or more times that the person says in the same way and with the same tone, it's probably something that they think is important and something that they identify with. With her, the recurring theme of her interviews was always like she gets fired up when somebody tells her no. Like she almost seeks it out. She's like, whenever I hear the word no or I get rejected, that just means that like I haven't done a good job convincing them. Always her goal is to get to a yes. And if you think about Kris Jenner and what that family has been able to accomplish, I believe three of them are billionaires, is that if you think about all the things that have happened to the family, rarely do they come out as victims. They always have the narrative in a way where they're in control and they're in control of their brand and they kind of reframe it. They're never the victim of something. And I think that that's very much Kris Jenner. And she is the business brains of the operation, but she's done it so expertly. And I learned so much from her for someone with no business background. The way she learned about business was literally through going to social events with her first husband, Robert Kardashian. And when they were at these events, she would just sit next to someone and ask questions. And she was like, I got a business school level education just by being around these people and being curious. So I definitely think there's a lot to learn from people who you just discount or you think that they don't know what they're talking about. It's so funny that you say Kris Jenner because she is one of those names for me as well for my TikTok content. And one of the first videos I ever made that went viral was literally about the story of her life because I was so (laughs) fascinated by it because I thought, oh, I want to talk about business, but how do I make this work on TikTok? I assumed that people would like me talking about the Kardashian Jenners and I was right. And (laughs) I had the same insights. I remember just thinking, wow, this is a woman who from her first marriage had, by the time she was maybe 30, she had all these kids and then eventually she was divorced. And her career, I also think her story is such an inspiring case study of your career doesn't have to start at 22 and you have to have everything figured out and you can actually let it unfold in the timeline that's right for your life and you can still achieve so much because now I almost see her as the head of this multi-billion dollar media and commerce conglomerate and she's the mastermind behind it. How many people can do that. Exactly. Put it perfectly. (laughs) That's my Christian rant. I'm curious about how the newsletter has evolved since you started. I have read you talking about sort of how the tone has changed and how, you know, you've really buttoned it up a little bit more. But I'm also curious about elements of the craft of writing it, because in a way, nobody really does what you do. And you were the first to do this. And so you're kind of taking your skill sets from journalism and applying it to this whole new thing. And you're kind of pioneering a format. And so what has evolved in in your craft and your skill set and and how has the newsletter evolved as a result? Yeah, like I've mentioned before, in the very beginning of writing the profile, because I was doing it outside of work, because I really wanted this to be my personal newsletter, I was like, I'm going to make this really voicey and I'm going to insert myself a lot and make jokes that are so bad. Because with Fortune, I had to be very professional, right? So this was my personal thing. I could talk about whatever I wanted. But (laughs) that's all fine and good when you're sending it to your family and friends. Then, you know, at the top, I would write something really dumb and then I would have a GIF and then I would curate the seven to eight profiles. But then the second that someone external signed up that I didn't recognize, suddenly I was like, oh, wait a second. Like, are they going to find my jokes funny? But I continued kind of down that path. And then as more and more people joined, they were like, I really, really like the content, but the voice and the tone is just a little juvenile. And also, I mean, I was like 26 at the time. My age was showing. I was talking about drinking rosé in Italy. Like, I, I don't know what I was doing, but I also didn't have an idea of like what I wanted the profile to be yet. So that feedback was really valuable, even though it was critical, because I got to test and experiment and evolve and make it better over time. Because if I had just waited until there was this perfect iteration of the profile, I would have never launched it. Because how do you know something's perfect? You don't unless you start doing it in public. And I think like you mentioned, like you've been doing TikTok and podcasting. And the second that you put something out in public, you're like, all right, it's now open to criticism. It's now open to all of your feedback. But that's what makes you better at your craft. And so I think all those years of like putting the reps in have allowed me to get here, which is like that. That content that I started writing in 2017 has now evolved into a full book. 
I would have never written a book if I hadn't already tested the ideas with the audience, if I hadn't already like written things in public so that I knew what was interesting to people. You have no idea what's interesting until you put it out there and people tell you this is interesting or not in the book. And I hope the book resonates with people because it's already ideas that have been tested with, you know, my personal readership of the profile. So if I think something's interesting, likely they will too, because they've self-selected into this community. And the way it's evolved to today is it's much more professional and it's much more like a media business in that I interview people. Maybe I do insert myself a little bit more than I would at a place like Fortune, but that's that's just something that I've learned over time. Like people want to hear from me because they're subscribing to a person, not a faceless media organization. So I will insert myself a little bit more, but I've very much professionalized it. And I do think like the profile today is the best version of itself that it's ever been. Do you find that as a creator, as a writer, as a creator, you crave an outlet to be more casual and less buttoned up anywhere else? Ooh, <laughs> so yes, but for me, it's always been the profile because like, for example, if I'm going through something in my life and I want to talk about it, that's the place I would turn to. I wouldn't even do it on Twitter. You know, like to me that that's kind of a, a safe community of people who I know have the context and won't judge me based on this one thing that I said. And I actually value their feedback. So in a sense, like I've learned over many, many years of meeting these people, interviewing very successful people and profiling them, even if I've never met them. What I've learned is that everything's kind of a facade. Everything we see, all the interviews they do, like you have to really, really dig deep and ask a lot of questions and read a lot of profiles and books on them if you haven't met them to truly understand who they are as a person. Because I think our society has this problem where we want to idolize people and we want to put them up on a pedestal and like me, like everybody else, Melinda Gates and Bill Gates, they had the perfect marriage. I could learn so much. And then what happened? People were blindsided and they were so sad and and all this stuff, I read all the media takes and all I kept thinking was you should never idolize someone because you don't actually know what happens behind closed doors. You should only aim to learn. And that's my goal with the profile. That's my goal with this book is like me, just like everybody else wants to put my best foot forward. But like you have to have a way where you think so critically. <laughs> That you can take what somebody is saying, even if you like them, and scrutinize it and then go and do your research and if you can interview them to better understand the truth behind it and learn from them. Because I think, like you said, like, is there a place where you crave being more casual? Yes. And I think we all do. But it's just like, you have to be very, very careful that you don't come off as like, I'm Paulina and I'm perfect and nothing ever goes wrong. And it's like that place where you go to do that has to be something where the people know you, you've built a community or you feel safe sharing. I love hearing that you feel like your newsletter and sharing with your audience is actually one of those outlets where you feel like you can be real because that speaks to the quality of your audience, the relationship that you've built with them, the sense of community maybe. So I'm curious about what you've learned about who makes up your audience. I'm sure it's an incredibly diverse set of people and hard to really simplify, but what have you learned that might be a little surprising? How would you describe who makes up your audience? Yeah, I learned this when in 2019, I wanted to better understand a who the readers were, but b like I wanted to connect with them in a way that I hadn't connected before. So I saw Tim Urban from Wait But Why. He did this massive global event called Wait But High, where <laughs> he sent out an email and all these people in different cities got together solely based on the one thing that they had in common, which is reading Wait But Why. At the time that he did it, I'm pretty sure he had like 250,000 readers. By the time that I read this and I wanted to try it, the profile only had 10,000. So I was like, oh no, I mean, is anybody going to show up? But we picked this weekend in December in 2019 and I did so many things. I sent out a Google form, then people filled it out with the cities where they're based. And then I would pick a person in that city and ask them to be an organizer, all this stuff. And finally, the day came and people did meet up. San Francisco, New York, LA, Atlanta, like Miami, people in, in Singapore, there was a meetup in Nairobi, Kenya, wow. and there was one in India. It was all over, but it was just so 
cool to see. Even if in Nairobi, there were only two people who went. That's okay. They didn't know each other before this. And one of them said, we met up as strangers and we left as friends. And like Mm -hmm. that kind of thing just shows like it's beyond just readers, right? It's beyond just an audience. It's truly a community. And if you're able to build that, those people will be with you through every reinvention, through every move in life. And I think based on what I saw, the profile doesn't really have your regular like, oh, it's only for like young people who want to be professionals. Like, no, like there's a 75 year old reader I regularly chat with who really finds value in it. There's also an 18 year old. There's no hard and fast rules about that. But in the book, I write about community, about building community. And the three things that I've learned about community is you need to be able to overserve your audience or your readership or your community base, whatever that is. And overserving means doing things that aren't scalable. What I did, that's not scalable. That took so much of my time. Like it didn't bring me page views or subscribers or whatever. It was purely done to have these people meet and I wanted to be part of the community. The second thing that I learned is you want to build goodwill with your community. So goodwill meaning how I showed up at the New York City event and talked to all the readers or how Taylor Swift invites some of her listeners to her house and bakes them cookies and helps like and they all listen to the album together. That's building goodwill. Those people when they think of you, they're like, oh yeah, they show up, they do this for the community, etc. The third thing that I learned is that you want to create moments of serendipity. So by looking at your community as a community and a group of people that you can create serendipity for, it's that example of there were these meetups all over the world. There's an element of serendipity that the profile brought to a community that might have never met. So in other words, it's not just me talking to my readers. It's the readers talking to each other, creating moments of serendipity. Maybe somebody strikes up a friendship they may not have had or a business deal or something like that. So it's those three things. I love that. And I can see there being such a robust community, even from the initially small audience that you had, because this is just my guess. But somebody who really loves the profile is obviously somebody who's incredibly curious, but also because your content has this more scholarly angle, more sort of, I feel like the content you create has a more gracious tone than a lot of media can, which kind of has to be critical, right? You have to be a little bit more sharp edged, I think, in more traditional media. And so I feel like for people who love of learning from regular journalism, but maybe want a tone or an approach that affords more grace to its subject matter. I think your content is so perfect for that. I would guess that that attracts people who just have really great shared values, even if not necessarily, you know, demographic overlap or whatever. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that because I've thought about like, why is it like that? And I've heard the word grace before, but I think it's more of like an abundance of perspective. And I think I'm the perfect person to write something like the profile because yes, you know, I've been trained in a traditional newsroom, but also just like my life experience is immigrating from Bulgaria to the United States, particularly the South, then from growing up in the South and then going to New York. It's like I've seen these three perspectives and I think in like really divisive political environments, I have a really hard time because I see all these different perspectives and how these people are talking over each other, but not really listening and not really understanding each other's point of view. Because I think a lot of us, like our instinct when we don't understand something or someone is to shun them. Whereas like, what if we tried to understand them? And I think that that's truly what the essence of the profile is. It's like, here's this person. Here's what you may think about them. How can we better understand who they are and why they are the way they are, why they believe what they believe? Because it's likely based based on where they live, who their parents were, what belief systems they grew up in. And I think that's really what I try to infuse the profile with is perspective. I have these conversations with the readers every day where someone may not agree with why I included a certain profile of someone. And I have to explain, like, did you read it? (laughs) But also, if you don't understand where that person's coming from, maybe there's something that you believe that is causing them. I actually feel kind of similarly in some ways. I, similar to you, was born in a post-Soviet country and spent the first eight years of my life there and then came to Sacramento, California, not quite Atlanta, Georgia, but still very different perspectives and worlds. And also just going to Brown and then being in Silicon Valley, but also kind of having friends and connections in different parts of life. 
I feel like I can sort of see the counter argument to everything. And so sometimes I almost feel confused because I'm like, okay, any stance that I come up with myself, I can still find the counter arguments to that. So I tend to hold ideas, especially in this climate, pretty loosely. And I appreciate that you're not hitting people over the head with that as a value, but because it infuses what you do and it's the part of you know how you approach things, I imagine that in a divisive climate like this, people also really appreciate that. I love to hear. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned earlier that you're able to write the book that you just wrote because you've had all these years of data about what interests people. What have you learned about what actually interests people? What have you learned about what people like that might be surprising based on the qualitative data and feedback you've inevitably accumulated and also some of the actual analytics of what people click on and where the numbers actually are not what you'd expect? That's a great question because I think as writers, we always want somebody to say like, that's great and I really enjoyed that and whatever. It's thriving on all the qualitative data. But what I found is that when I first started at Fortune, I I was doing audience engagement, which meant posting on their social media channels, but carefully tracking what people were reading and like how to repackage that uh, so that it gets more views or shares. So I always paid attention to the qualitative and the quantitative data of the profile. So maybe, you know, I'll say, oh, wow, this one interview or this one column that I wrote got so many replies. But then I'll look on Google Analytics and I'm like, yes, like a lot of people responded, but it wasn't shared or people didn't click on it that much. It's not one of my most popular. On the other hand, sometimes you'll see <laughs> a lot of clicks and shares on an article and you'll wonder why. So one of my most popular articles on the profile website is around relationships. When I got married in 2020, I asked all the readers if they had relationship advice. And it was really good. <laughs> it was really good relationship advice. And I just kind of compiled it and I put it in one article. But that was kind of an outlier for the profile. I don't write about relationship stuff in general. But that one post got so much play, largely because, you know, there's a personal aspect to it, but also because people on the internet love relationships content. That's like a trend that you have to know is there before you start judging everything through that lens. So I wasn't all of a sudden going to be like, oh, that's the most popular thing. I'm only I'm going to pivot and only write about relationships now. It's like taking it with a grain of salt. So for the book, I have a chapter on relationships, but it's not solely, you know, fluffy relationship content that you might find on a listicle somewhere on the internet. It's much more like, you know, I talk about the compound interest of trust, whether it's romantic relationships, whether it's business relationships, whether it's all sorts of like friendships. How can you build trust by being consistent over time and keeping your promises and things like that, that I think can benefit you no matter what you're doing in life, because everything is ultimately a relationship. But I have some of that in there. And then and then on another chapter, I have a chapter on like clarity of thought and how to update and upgrade your belief system and things like that. That's all based on a combination of the qualitative and quantitative data that I've compiled over the years. I love the compound interest of trust. I'm going to keep that one in but my back pocket. What's the type of feedback that you get somewhat regularly that just makes your heart sing? Probably when someone says, I had never heard of this person, but now I've gone down a deep rabbit hole, like learning about them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's awesome because it just reinforces the fact that if I see someone that I think is interesting, other people will hopefully think they're interesting, but also most importantly, learn from. There's this woman named Lima Bowie, and she helped end a 14-year civil war in Liberia. And it was so incredible because what she was able to do is just unheard of. She won a Nobel Peace Prize for this, but she was able to bring together both the Muslim women and the Christian women and have them mobilize them into this like peace activist protest <laughs> that ended a 14 year civil war. And few people had heard of her, but the lessons in that dossier that I wrote are so crisp and so applicable to everyday life that I think that's, you know, the type of person I hope people see and are like, wow, you know, I had never heard of them, but look at what kind of impact they've had on the world. 
That's beautiful. In a way, now you have a platform to spotlight people that have less than the recognition they deserve or are less well-known than they deserve. And and I feel like in a way with my TikTok, I also try to incorporate, okay, let's talk about the big names that everybody finds compelling and culturally relevant. But let's also use the sort of leverage generated by that to spotlight this other sort of brand or up-and-coming founder who might be a little less recognized. And that feels so fulfilling to me. I'm curious, other than her, and, and that sounds like an incredible person, who are some figures that you feel are just shining examples of humanity that are not as well known. Yeah. And it's so funny because I think if people don't really understand what the profile is and they only hear like, oh, we study successful people, they immediately discount it as hero worship or something like that, where it's like, oh, what do I have to learn from successful people? And and that just shows me how they define success, because obviously they define success in terms of like monetary status and wealth and whatever, just the classical indicators of achievement. But the way I define it is much more like, are you you personally like fulfilled? (laughs) And are you doing something with your time that is meaningful that other people can learn? One person like that, that I interviewed that I think about him honestly on a daily basis. (laughs) And the lessons that I learned from him is Robert Hogue. He's an author and a motivational speaker, but you know, he's not traditionally successful. He doesn't have tons and tons of money. There's no fanfare about him on a daily basis, but what he has undergone in his life is probably one of the things that very few people could survive and not buckle under the the pressure and, and just the terribleness of it all. He was born as a baby with a large tumor in the middle of his face and they had to take it off and do a bunch of surgeries on his face. And he has reclaimed the word ugly. When he was born, his mom actually, his own mother, when she saw the baby, she was like, I don't want to take him home. Like, this is going to be so hard on our family. This is going to be so hard on him growing up. I don't want to take him home. And she kept a journal in which she was like very, very honest about it. And she was just like, he's so ugly. I can't even look at him, all this stuff. And now, you know, 40, 50 years later, Robert still has that journal and he thinks that it's the most beautiful thing because it captured his mom's thoughts so in the moment. And he's like, how amazing that ultimately they did take him home after having the siblings take a vote whether they wanted to bring the baby home. He got to have a very non-normal childhood. He was teased and bullied every single day. But then ultimately he was like, that gave me the opportunity to find meaning and beauty in other things. Beauty is actually not physical beauty. Beauty is subjective, just like success is subjective. It's something that you deem beautiful, I might think is ugly or vice versa. It's so subjective. And he says like to him, I think the way he puts it is like beauty is a bunch of different dots on a map. You can't really pin it down. And to me, like looking at his life and what he's been able to accomplish, he is a shining example of someone who has so much perspective and so much empathy, even to the people who are really cruel to him. And he's reached a level of like inner peace that I think the most traditionally successful people on this planet do. Wow, that is beautiful. And I've never heard of that name before. So another learning for me. You have probably read, I don't know, would you say it's thousands of profiles written by other people? Yeah. (laughs) After having read probably thousands of profiles, what are your insights on what makes a well-written profile? It's like what I mentioned earlier. It's capturing those tiny, tiny things that we all do differently, but they're hard to see unless you're very closely observing the person. So if you look at me, we're on video now, (laughs) but you can see that I talk with my hands a lot. That's probably a small thing that I do because maybe it's indicative of like a bigger thing. Like I'm trying to express myself in a way beyond just words or I just can't sit still. You know, when are... <laughs> I think great profile writers are people who are just experts at listening and really, really observing. When I wrote my first profile for Fortune, I remember I didn't have the skill set to know that you're supposed to notice everything. You're supposed to be in their office and look at what they have on the walls, see how they're dressed. How are they sitting when they're talking to their colleagues? Like all of these tiny things give you insight into who they are as a person. One time I listened to a podcast with Katie Weaver. She's a really, really great profile writer. And she said that she thinks about profiles the same way that she thinks about seeing things in slow motion. 
She said that humans find slow motion so satisfying because when it's slow, it allows your brain to take in all the details of this thing. And it's the same with writing a profile. You have to slow the person down enough where the reader is looking at them and like taking in all the details and whatever their habits and their weird tics and whatever to better understand them. One profile that does a really good job of this, it's on Justin Bieber. I think it's called Justin Would Like to Reintroduce Himself or something like that. And it's written by Katie, actually. It's, it's so interesting because she's talking about him. And she's like, when you're in conversation with him, what you just did now, like you nodded when I said that, he doesn't do that. He doesn't back channel. And she goes into this whole explanation how like regardless of culture, background, what language you speak, it's like a universal human thing that you back channel when somebody's telling you a story and someone's talking to you. You either nod or uh, you say mm-hmm to let them know you're listening or things like that. And she noticed that Justin does not do that and that makes their interaction super awkward. So she'll tell him a joke and he'll just stare at her. <laughs> so her conclusion is like, I don't know whether this is because he's just a young kid or that he just like doesn't understand the social norms because he's been isolated by fame and he doesn't hang out in group settings with other people. He's usually alone. So it's just like those types of things really make it like the fact that I still remember that from this profile that I read in 2014 shows you that it really sticks with you and you then take that and notice it in other people. So I think the best profile writers really observe and even if they have limited time with their subject, they get the color from them that they need for the article. I've heard you actually reference that profile before and you said that Katie really does a great job of humanizing Justin in that profile. And I love that because that goes back to what we're talking about, right? Like an abundance of perspective, maybe suspending an agenda or judgment and really letting the full spectrum of colors of that particular character come out. I think that adds a richness and depth that is compelling because it doesn't feel like it's trying to force a certain kind of story. I would love to get some of your advice for partly selfish reasons on interviewing tips that you've accumulated over the years as both a journalist and, you know, as now somebody who is writing these profiles of people. What are some tips that you've learned over time about how to be a great and skillful interviewer. I mean, you obviously do a great job. <laughs> Interview is, it's a great example of great interviewing skills. But basically what you want to do is like really, really listen instead of just thinking about your next question, listen to the answer because maybe that's where you'll find the most interesting thing. I interviewed the former CEO of GE of General Electric, Jeff Immelt. And he is a person who everybody you talk to is really mad at him. <laughs> They're mad at him because he came after a CEO, Jack Welch, who was really well liked and really well respected and did a lot for shareholders. And then in came Jeff and he's like different. He didn't really maximize shareholder value in the same way that his predecessor did. And everybody always talks to him about that, right? Like, oh man, that sucks. You did a horrible job. And I did touch on those things, but Jeff made one comment during his answer where I was like, hold on. <laughs> and I told him in the interview, I was like, you probably never get asked about this, but I want to ask you about that. He said that in the midst of all the chaos that was going on while he was CEO, his family was kind of the refuge for him. And he and his wife and his kids served as that place of comfort where he felt like safe while everything else was going on. And, and he didn't say all that. He just said something like, you know, my wife and I have always had a great marriage. And he went on and I was like, hold on, <laughs> I got to ask you what that was like, because that sort of immense professional pressure, we've seen how it can like create chaos in your personal life as well. But he was able to keep that solid. So to me, like that's what's interesting. And it's really listening to people's answers where you're like, that was very interesting and you probably never get asked that. Let's talk about that. Another thing that really helps me is that I try to read or listen to or watch the majority of what the person has done before our interview because I don't want to ask them the same exact questions that they've already been asked. And also, I think you know you've asked a great question when the person has to stop and pause and think about it. Because a lot of times it's like if it's the same question, you just regurgitate what you've already said. It's very easy for CEOs and celebrities to answer like that because they constantly get asked the same things. But if you can ask something so out of left field where they're like, whoa, hold on, let me think about that. I think that's the marker of a really great interview. 
that actually dovetails into what I was going to ask next, which was precisely about that. How do you get past people's talking points, right? Because sometimes people have a specific agenda or a thing that they want to promote or certain talking points. And it can be a little hard to kind of break that shell and have a real conversation. And sometimes that's just part of it. But I imagine you have maybe had more practice at this than I have. What would you say are some tips you have about kind of getting into a conversation that feels more real and is past some of the ready talking points? Yeah. So early on at Fortune, I remember I was really nervous because I could feel every time that I went into an interview, I could feel that the person was like really underestimating me or thinking that I didn't look like a Fortune magazine reporter. And I spent enough time with the senior reporters where I saw how they were very, very direct and kind of almost like difficult to relate to in a way. It wasn't me. I did not look like them. I did not interview like them, etc. And then one editor told me like, forget about that, like use that to your advantage. And I've always thought about that since in that when you go into an interview, I don't have to pretend to be somebody I'm not. I'm not like that. I can be direct, like if we only have 15 minutes, whatever. But if it's a 30 minutes or to an hour long interview, I always find that the first 15, 20 minutes, it's just getting to know each other. And then you reach this level where the person forgets that they're being interviewed and it's more of a human conversation. And the thing that I always do, and I noticed you do it too, in the beginning when I told you about Kris Jenner, you told me that you have done that with your TikTok, specifically around Kris Jenner. You didn't have to tell me. So what I found I've had a lot of success with is like, if I want a more human and personal answer from the other person, I should offer something semi-vulnerable myself. So I should say, you know, well, there's been a time in my life when this happened. Like, how did you deal with that? It's almost you're asking for advice in a weird way where it's like, I want you to talk to me like a human. I don't want you to talk to me like I'm a robot. And the other thing is I find a lot with the CEOs, if they don't want to answer your question the first time you ask it, I always try to ask it a different way the second time. And I just kind of change it a little and repackage it to see what they have to say. And eventually you might get to an answer. But yeah, I think like disarming them, that's a really powerful tool if you can use that correctly. And I think that kind of probably is just rooted in really deep, genuine curiosity, right? Like that's what I think makes your content so strong. And and that's what I hope to do. And you might have noticed that, you know, I actually sent you questions beforehand and I've switched them up a little bit because the more I started unpacking some of the other interviews you've done, I had this massive other list and I was like, I can't wait to ask her these questions. I also love that this is becoming kind of a meta interview where the interview is becoming about the interview. <laughs> and I kind of that's love great. that. I love that. <laughs> you've interviewed some really big names like Melinda Gates and Steve Schwartzman and the former CEO of GE and all kinds of names. How do you manage nerves or do you ever get nervous before a big interview? Okay, so this is really bizarre because let's say that I was at a coffee shop and I noticed Melinda Gates sitting there. Oh my God, I would lose my mind. But when I'm doing it for work, it's so weird. I never, I don't have this like fangirl moment because I know it's for work and I know I have to be professional. And I write about this in the book, but I've noticed that a lot of, of the really top performers in their field, they use something they call like an alter ego. So they may be one way, Beyonce may be really shy and introverted in her regular life, but when she goes on stage, she's this confident powerhouse. But that's not how she identifies personally when she's not on stage. I'm the same way when I'm in my like regular life, you know, I'm just a regular me. (laughs) But then if I have to interview someone, it's almost as if like I embody this person. I am really prepared. I know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm going to ask you this as a professional. And I'm really curious about your answer. Whereas I, I might not be like that in a more informal setting. But I think like having this version of yourself that's an ideal self really helps because it's like, how can I embody that person? And it makes you better. And over time, you start to become that person. What I really like working on deep dives and profiles and with people I have never met is that I watch so many of their interviews that I start to notice like how they're sitting and their body language like Oprah's probably the best interviewer on this planet when you watch her do interviews she leans in she leans back she puts her hand on the couch she puts it over her mouth she's surprised she's like she's doing everything in such an exaggerated manner but it really helps interview subject be more relaxed depending on what style the interview is so once I started kind of studying 
studying her, I saw myself start to implement some of those things in my own life. So it's helpful. You know, when you study these people, you can take what you want in order to become better. And then when I interviewed Melinda Gates, it was a phone interview. So it wasn't in person. I knew I only had 30 minutes with her. And I was like, I need to get through all of the things I want to ask her about. And it turned out great, I think. So the advice is find your own inner Sasha Fierce, like Beyonce, (laughs) and you're going to crush it. (laughs) You've mentioned before that it took you years to get Brandon Santon of Humans of New York in for an interview. First of all, what actually finally convinced him to be interviewed? Because he seems like a very private person. And what advice do you have for those of us who are podcasting or interviewing other people and have maybe some dream guests and want to kind of play our cards right and convince them to come on board? Yeah, I do honestly think that sometimes you might do all the things right and they might still say no just because the timing is wrong for them. And I think with Brandon, that's kind of what it was. He never did. Before I interviewed him, I had never read or watched any interview that he had done, like a proper, I'm going to interview Brandon Stanton type interview. Usually it was like, give a talk on all the people that you've profiled, but never about him. And I kind of saw myself in him because I don't like being the center of attention. I like talking about all the other people. So he, (laughs) oh my God. So we went to the same university. And then when I was editor of the college paper, we did a very small article on him. It was about that he got like 10,000 followers on Facebook or something. From then on, I've been trying to interview him, whether it was for Fortune or for the profile. And so it was, I think it was like 10 years that I tried. And finally, I wrote a profile dossier on him, meaning that I just collected whatever was written about him on the internet or whether, you know, he gave a talk or something. And I wrote a quick intro on him and then some links. So I sent that to him and I said, hey, I just wrote this about you. I literally had contacted him via email via Facebook, via everything. This was on Twitter DM. And I was like, hey, I just wrote this about you. Like, I would really love to talk to you. Would you be up for an interview? And for some unknown reason, he said yes. I don't know if it was because he read it and he was like, oh, okay. Like, I see your style of writing. Happy to do it. Or if it was something else. We ended up doing it. And since then, like, he's actually become a friend, which is incredible. But at the time, I was so nervous. I was so excited because I had a million things I wanted to talk to him about. And then he would give me really long answers. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, I I need more. (laughs) I need more time. But it ended up being a really, really great interview. And it's one of the things that I still get inbound about where people are saying, you know, I was looking for Brandon Stanton and the only interview I found on YouTube was yours. I really enjoyed it. So it's like, you just never know. I think persistence and being able to show them what you've written in the past will help them make an informed decision. I want to switch gears to talking about your career as a creator and how you think about your career. You've mentioned before that the advice you would give your 18-year-old self is that you would tell her to stop planning so much and not be so attached to her five-year plans. So I'm curious now, how do you think about planning your career as a creator versus being responsive to the moment and to opportunities that arise? Because this is something I'm personally struggling with is I have a big vision, but sometimes I find that I can get too tripped up over obsessing over the long-term vision and the goal and the objectives instead of just fully enjoying the opportunities that are here now and enjoying the journey I get to fixated on the destination. So how do you personally approach that? So I think it's okay to have that. And I actually think it's important to have that big vision or that big destination, but it's just like the path that you take to get there may not be the one that you plan and may not be the one that you've always envisioned. At least it wasn't for me. And I've written before about like, I always had a five-year plan, except it never panned out the way that I (laughs) thought it would. (laughs) And now looking back, like, thank God I got here this way because just a very quick aside, I interviewed Francis Ngannou. He's the heavyweight champion uh, in MMA. He's incredible. He has an incredible story. But the way he got to the United States was super convoluted. He walked through the desert. He got captured a bunch of times and put in Moroccan jail. Then he got to to Spain as a refugee, then was homeless in Paris, ultimately made it to the United States and became a champion. I asked him because my family got to the United States with a green card. And he told me that he every year would apply for the green card lottery. And he was like, I never won. But thank God that I didn't win because if I had, I don't think I would have achieved what I have today because I came via that path and I didn't 
become via the super really, really difficult path. So what did he tell me? He was like, I, I might have been like a security guard or something in the US. I might be there, but that's not ultimately what he wanted. He wanted to be a professional fighter. So it, it's kind of similar. It's like, would I have written a book if my exact five-year plan had panned out the way I planned it? Probably not. So it's okay to have this big vision, but it's just being very flexible on, I'm really interested in this today. And then this leads me to this opportunity and this leads me here. And somehow if you act with intention that embodies your big vision, then that's okay because that means you're on the right path, whatever that path may be. This is actually so true of my own path, even the past few years. So when we first met, I don't know if you remember this, but we had a call scheduled. And then the day before our call, we bumped into each other at a party in Miami. And during our call, I was telling you about, I want to build this sort of women's media and education company, Absolutely. helping women entrepreneurs. And that specific iteration did not actually pan out. And I'm so glad it didn't because now I get to do it in a way that has way more flexibility and freedom and autonomy as a creator. But the ultimate kind of through line is similar. So this, you know, is just another example of holding fast to the vision and being flexible about the how. Exactly. Exactly. So I want to wrap up with just talking about your book. You wrote recently, and I'm going to quote this, everything changed after my daughter was born in November 2021. I had been thinking about writing a book for years, but never got around to it. When she came along, everything changed. I had no time, yet I wanted to do more. I think that that is so beautiful. So tell us about that inflection point of realizing, you know what, I actually want to do this. Yeah. So I had thought about writing a book, but like never seriously. I never thought like I will one day write a book about this subject. You know, every writer, I think, ultimately wants to write a book. But then when <laughs> in the most inopportune time, I got a message from an editor at a publishing house who said that he enjoyed one of the dossiers that I had written on uh, Melanie Perkins, who's the founder of Canva. And he was like, oh, I really enjoyed this. If your thoughts ever turn to writing a book, let us know. And I was like, well, my thoughts have always turned, but like I <laughs> never seriously, but I'm curious. Like I was just curious about the publishing process. And at the time, the baby was two or three months old. I wasn't sleeping. She wasn't sleeping. Nobody was sleeping. I was just, <laughs> I was just not a very pleasant person to be around. And <laughs> a book was the last thing on my mind. But I got on a call with him for literally 15 minutes and I was just like, oh, okay, so how does this work? And he was like, well, do you need a book proposal? And then based on whether we think this could work, we'll let you know. And, and I was like, this seems really low stakes. If I just like write a book proposal, maybe if they like it in the future, I can do it. And then I wrote it and they're like, oh, we like this. Can you send like a proposed table of contents? And I was like, oh, sure, that's easy. 30 minutes, like I did that. And then from there, like I wrote a sample chapter and then I was too far in. <laughs> but the thing about having a baby and being like, I had no time, but I wanted to do more. It really stems from one of my friends said this to me. She said it in a very like basic sense, but I took it to mean something else. She said like, just remember when you have the baby, do something every day that's only for you. Because at that point, like your entire being is for another person's survival. And she was like, whether it's like 15 minutes, just you spend scrolling on Instagram. But like to me, what was fulfilling is writing. And I had taken a three-month pause from the profile, but I had pre-written a bunch of profiles, so I was still sending it every week. But I, I wasn't actively writing every day. And I was like, this to me is so personally fulfilling that I think in the future I'll look back and be like, damn, like I'm really glad I did that. So after I talked to him and after I thought about it and I had written like a sample chapter, I was like, I'm just going to commit and I'm just going to do it. <laughs> and luckily, like the baby started sleeping a little bit longer after 7 p.m., so my thought was during the day, I'll kind of be with her and write a little bit of the profile. And then at night, this is my time for the book. But it was my time. I wasn't doing it for anybody else. And I actually liked that it was such a long-term project because I could like focus on it. And that's the reason I mentioned I did not tell anybody about the book because I genuinely didn't think I'd finish it. So I only announced it and it was finished. <laughs> That's so funny that your friend told you take 15 minutes to do something on your own and you went and wrote a whole book. That's probably not what you had in mind. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> Good advice, though. On that note, where can people pre-order the book and where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at, at Paulina underscore Marinova, or you can sign up for the profile, which is at readtheprofile.com, or you can pre-order the book at hiddengeniusbook.com. Amazing. Paulina, this was such a delight. Thank you so much for Thank you joining. So much.